Well, good morning and welcome again. My name is Marshall. I'll be teaching on the passage that uh, Beth just read. I'm uh, the senior pastor here and it's good to see you this morning. I uh, Hello and welcome to all the Northwestern folks. I actually had a had a purple tie I was going to wear, but I didn't have a clean white shirt to wear with it, so, um, so I'm wearing my, I don't know if this is purple, periwinkle maybe, so, but this is for you. This is what I, what I, the things I do for you, the things I do. Let me pray before we look at this beautiful, troubling, and gracious passage. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for characters like Jacob. Above all, we thank you that you have been faithful to us. I pray that you would meet us, God, in the teaching of your word. Be with both those who listen, no matter where we're coming from, as well, Lord, as with the one who speaks. Be with us. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. On Friday night, this Friday night, after two decades and 20 major championships, Roger Federer retired from tennis just two days ago. Appropriate to everything about him, he went out playing with his longtime rival, Rafael Nadal. This thing called the Laver Cup, Laver Cup, and Rafa and Federer played together in what is the last professional match of Robert, Roger Federer. He has retired. And I'm among a legion of tennis fans who have loved watching. I love watching Nadal, I respect Djokovic, but Federer, he's been my man. He has been my man, and watching him in a major has been appointment viewing for me, Roger Federer. And fans and writers, more so than the other two particularly, have waxed eloquent about Roger Federer. One of America's greatest authors of the 21st century, David Foster Wallace, wrote a very famous article about the beauty of Roger Federer's game. And the two words that keep coming up with Roger Federer are beauty and grace. I love what John McEnroe, the great tennis player of another generation, said about uh, Federer, he said he is Barishnikov, the great dancer, he's Barishnikov in sneakers, beauty and grace. But I came across a quote from longtime uh, player on the women's tour and current broadcaster Mary Carrillo. She says this about Federer, his legacy is grace, grace in the way he played, grace under pressure, grace with children, grace with kings, with queens. Grace when he moved, when he sat, when he won, when he lost. In French, English, German, Afrikaans, it was just in his bones to be that way. Now, I want to be generous. I want to be gracious. I understand what Carrillo means. I do understand what she's saying about Roger Federer and the way that he plays. But to be a little bit humorous, uh, it makes me think of the Princess Bride, Inigo Montoya. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. This fall, we've been doing a deep dive into grace. We're calling the series Amazing Grace, the Life of Jacob. And I'm doing this series because I want to provoke us, and maybe even more so than most weeks today, provoke us to understand what this word means when the scriptures talk about it, when God talks about grace. Because grace is not being nice. It's not being kind, and it's not, as much as I love Roger Federer, it is not being like Roger Federer. The Bible, I think this is an accurate definition from the scriptures, it's a theological but an accurate definition, that grace is unconditional acceptance of undeserving persons by an unobligated God, and that grace slowly, painfully, but surely by the power of God makes people more like himself. 
And so today we are in Genesis chapter 33. If you were with us last week, or let me tell you what happened. Last week, Jacob had the most amazing moment of his life. In the middle of the night, he is wrestled by God himself. And in the middle of that wrestling match that lasts all night long, God touches his hip. He humbles him. He breaks him. And for the rest of his days, Jacob will walk with a limp. And every time he takes a step, he will remember that he has encountered and wrestled with the living God. And so you think, well, if you've had an experience like that, what do you do next? <laughs> uh, like that, like, there's no greater experience than this, okay? This is the height of human experience. He does not go off to found a monastery. He does not go off to cloister himself. He keeps living. In fact, he plunges himself into the world. And very specifically, his experience of God moves him to face reality. In his case, the reality of a broken relationship 20 years past with his brother. He moves in. You see, friends, to experience God in grace is not to like become like high and mighty and like you know float off the ground, but it is to enter into reality in its most granular detail. In this case, making restitution, repenting before your brother whom you have cheated, lied, and stolen from. And so this morning, what I want to do from Genesis 33, I want to look at the three characters in this story. So my outline is real simple: Jacob, Esau, God. Okay? Jacob, Esau, God. But before I jump in, because I'm kind of going to look at each of those individually, let me summarize the story that Beth just read for us. Now, after wrestling with God in Genesis 32, which is the chapter before us, and being wounded, walking with a limp, Jacob goes forward to meet his estranged brother. And just as a reminder, 20 years ago, he had lied, cheated, and stolen his brother out of his most precious possession, his father's blessing. So he's aggrieved his brother. That was 20 years before. Now, his brother, his brother is a man named Esau, and he approaches him with 400 men. Jacob is scared out of his mind. Jacob lines up his family, putting his favorites first, uh, but then he actually goes ahead of them. We'll see this. He bows seven times to the ground, but then verse 4, I love Beth's reading of it. The betrayed Esau, he'd been betrayed by a kiss, and he's reconciled to his brother with a kiss. He runs, he embraces him, he hugs his brother, he forgives him. The brothers are reconciled. Esau goes so far as to call his, his, his aggrieved brother, Jacob, brother. He calls him brother. He offers to travel with him, protect him. But Jacob is less than truthful. says, you go on. I'll catch up with you later. He has no intention of doing it. He turns the other way. But he finally fulfills the promise that God had made to him. And he arrives in the promised land by the end of chapter 33. All right. So let's look first at Jacob. Portrait number one, the longest we'll look at. And I want to say, Jacob, this is the beauty and the messiness of grace. Now, here in Genesis 33, Jacob is maddeningly inconsistent. He is massively up and down. And let me show you three different contrasts here in Genesis 33. The first contrast is in the first three verses. He is both courageous and humble. Who does not want to be both courageous and humble? He is courageous and humble, and yet almost in the same breath, he shows favoritism and prefers some of his family over the other. Now, if we were to go back into chapter 32, the previous chapter, we would see that Jacob is so afraid that he sends everybody ahead of himself before he goes to meet with his brother. He's going to meet with his brother who's mad, says he's going to kill him. And so he sends his children, he sends his wife, he sends a bunch of presents. And in Genesis 32, he's at the back of the pack. He is at the back of the pack. But after what has happened with God, in verse 33, it says, He passed on, very key, in front of them. 
You see, he's had this experience of God. He's wrestled with God, and he's no longer, he's afraid, but at least he is now courageous. He's gone from the back of the pack, afraid of his brother, to the front. You see, friends, the experience of God and his grace gives you guts. It makes you courageous. I mean, he is walking into what he thinks is a buzzsaw. But I love this combination. He is not only courageous, he is also humble. Verse 3, he bows to the ground seven different times. If you flip ahead to verse 8, it says that he calls Esau his Lord, his master. He's not only courageous, he is humble. And don't we want that for our children, that they would be courageous and humble? You see, friends, grace makes you, the experience of God makes you courageous. Why? Because you have God's acceptance, therefore you can face anything. But it's not just that. Grace also makes you humble because that acceptance is from God. Therefore, it makes us humble. It's not something we have achieved. Grace makes us humble. It makes us courageous. It gives us guts to face the hardest circumstances. But in the very midst of his courage and humility... He shows favoritism. Look with me at verse 2. I won't quote it, but basically what he does is he try, he's afraid he's going to get killed by his brother Esau, so he, puts his, he goes first, but he puts his servants first, then his least favorite wife and her children in the back of the pack furthest from Esau's forces. He puts his favorite wife and kids. Now, if you know Jacob's story, he has been a victim of favoritism. His father did not love him. Okay, He's been a victim of favoritism. He knows the pain. But that does not stop him from continuing the family line of showing favoritism. He shows favorites. This is not good, and it will actually come back to haunt him later in the book of Genesis with his own sons, his own favoritism. Okay? So you see this first contrast, courage and humility and favoritism. He is a divided man. But second contrast, we see the messiness and the beauty of grace. This might be my favorite. Jacob is both honest and dishonest. In this chapter, grace makes you honest. Verse 8, Esau asks him, basically, why did you send me all these gifts? And Esau is straight up, he is direct, he says, to find favor with you. (laughs) He is straight up honest. You see? Uh, Because grace is unconditional acceptance, it gives you the courage to be honest. You have nothing to hide. You have nothing to earn. You have nothing to lose. If you have been unconditionally accepted, you can be honest. Why did you send me these gifts? Because I wanted your favor, he says quite honestly. But within a very few minutes, within a very few minutes, he goes from honest to deceitful. Look with me at verses 12 to 17. I won't read the verses again, but Esau basically says, Go with me, come with me to my home in a place called Seir. And Jacob almost can't help himself. He says, you go ahead, and he gives all these different excuses. We're weak, we're going to slow you down. Just go ahead, I've got enough. And then he says, I'm coming to you. In Seir, he says, Jake, don't you go ahead, Esau. I am going to come with you. Now, Jacob has no intention of going to Seir, where his brother lives. He has no intention. In fact, he's not supposed to go. God has commanded him to go to Bethel, not to Seir. He needed to go to the land of promise. He did not need to lie. You see this? He's both deceitful and honest within minutes of each other to the same man, his brother. But it's not just those two contrasts. The third contrast we see is in verses 17 to 20. He both disobeys God and worships God. 
Now, I had this struggle last week. It's hard to make this point without a map. But Jacob had been commanded by God to go to a place called Bethel or Bethel. And he majorly drags his feet. Verse 17, he builds a house. Uh, You know, go to Bethel. He says, no, I'm going to stop here and build a house with stalls outside the land of promise. And then he goes a little bit further. In verse 18, he goes to a place called Shechem, which is not, it's close to Bethel. It's closer, but it's not there. Okay, so for a massive number of years, he is not directly obeying God's command to him. You see, the geography here, and it's hard to illustrate this without a map up here, but the geography tells a story which is a lack of full obedience. And by the way, this lack of full obedience is going to end up hurting him because where he stays is a place called Hemor in Shechem, okay? That's where he stops. And as we'll see in the spring, we'll come back and look at Genesis 34 in the spring, something awful and violent happens because he stays there. But in the midst of this disobedience, what does he also do? He worships. He builds an altar, the last verse. There he erected an altar and called it El Eloha Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. <laughs> right? Here in this dark pagan land surrounded by idol worshipers, there is this outpost of the worship of the one true God. Jacob, in the midst of great threats and surrounded all of he worships God. He builds an altar. I mean, who is this guy, Jacob? I mean, on the one hand, he is courageous. At the same time, he shows favoritism. On the one hand, he is honest, and yet he's also deceitful. He worships and he disobeys. Who does he remind you of? (laughs) He reminds me of me. How do we make sense of this? How do we make sense of this? Go back to verse 1. The first thing in this, the very first line, is his name is Jacob. Now, wait a minute. If you were here last week, and if, I'm sorry if you weren't. I'm, I know I'm re- referring back a lot. But in Genesis 32, God changed his name. He's no longer Jacob. He is Israel. His name has been changed from Jacob the cheater. That's what Jacob means, cheater. He's been changed from Jacob the cheater to Israel, the one who strives with God. Now, earlier in the book of Genesis, both Abraham and Sarah had their names changed, but they never looked back. They kept their their new names. But Jacob, back and forth. The rest of the book of Genesis, sometimes he's called Jacob, sometimes he's called Israel. The rest of the Bible, sometimes he's called Jacob, sometimes he's called Israel. Jacob has two warring natures like he has two names. Sometimes he is Israel and he strives with God, seeking the blessing directly from God, courageous, humble, honest. But sometimes he's like Jacob, the deceiver, trying to make his own way, to make his own breaks, to manipulate his way. And one of the lessons for this, friends, grace does triumph in our lives. It does. But it takes a lifetime to make us whole. Or to say it another way, it takes a lifetime of God's grace to finally be your true self. It takes a lifetime to become who God wants you to be. We've seen Jacob for 20 years now, and he's still not the man he's supposed to be. He's not who he was, but he's not who he's called to be yet. Grace takes time. The great German reformer Martin Luther had a great phrase. He said that we are simultaneously justified and sinners. We're simultaneously justified and sinners. That there's something beautiful and gracious about us, and yet we're like Jacob. We are divided. We live by our old nature. 
the sermon series after this will be on the book of Romans. And we'll see this when we get to the book of Romans. Because Romans 6 says, you have died to sin. Sin is any rebellion against God. Not doing what God wants. Not obeying. Not being righteous. But in Romans 6, Paul says, you have died to sin. Not dying. Died. You've died to sin. Right? I don't necessarily feel like that all the time. But then Romans 7, the apostle Paul says, I do what I do not want to do. I'm both justified and a sinner. I'm both honest and deceitful, right? I'm both courageous and I show favoritism. We're like, imagine a woman playing with a yo-yo and walking up a hill. That is what it's like to live the Christian life. There are ups and downs, but God in his grace, the trajectory is good. Now, the question I hope you're asking is, well, how do I grow in grace? I, I, I want to live into my new name. To use Jacob's terms, I want to be less and less like Jacob, and I want to be more and more like Israel. How do you grow in grace? Well, you lean into the good news. We call it the gospel. You lean into the good news of Jesus. And what is the good news of Jesus? I say this quite often. The good news of Jesus is that you, friends, are more wicked than you ever dared imagine. And at the same time, you are more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope in Jesus. More wicked than you ever imagined, more loved than you ever dared hope. And leaning into that truth, what does it look like to lean into that truth? Well, it looks like repentance. It looks like taking those words and making them true that I am wicked, yes, but I'm also loved and accepted. What we see here with Jacob, Jacob has stolen from his brother. He has sinned against his brother and he's making restitution. Repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry. It's actually living into that, accepting God's acceptance. Because he has God's acceptance, he can make restitution. He's free. He has been accepted. Repentance is the way that we lean into the good news that we are both wicked and accepted. So we repent We're honest about who we are, and we're honest reminding our hearts of what is true of us. Last night, okay, in the middle of the night, my son comes into my room and wakes me up. I'm tired. I was tired. And literally the first thing he does, he says his knee's hurting. And the first thing I do is I hit my, I'm like, so, I got to preach a sermon about grace. I mean, I literally, I laid there thinking, you got to be kidding me. I'm angry at my son because i got to get rest to preach a sermon about grace. He's seven, so I didn't say anything to him this morning. He didn't hear me me hit the bed. It wasn't that loud when I did it to him. But, I mean, goodness, I had to tell my my wife this morning. I was like, you're not going to believe what I did last night in the middle of the night. I got so angry at him just because he was disturbing my sleep, right? Lean into the gospel. And, friends, it's... Because I'm accepted, I can tell you that. That's embarrassing. But I'm free. I'm accepted. We lean into, yes, you're more wicked than you ever did. You get mad at your kid in the middle of the night just for being hurt. And more importantly, you are more loved and accepted than you ever dared imagine. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the messiness of grace in the life of Jacob. Well, there's another character a little bit more briefly, and that is Esau. Now, Esau, friends, is a cautionary tale. This is the perils of a self-made man. I really like Esau. I told you that when I started this series. Uh, I'm an older brother like he is. Um, I generally do the right thing. I'm generally a nice guy. Esau is all those things. 
I mean, think about this. His brother has stolen his most cherished item. His greatest financial opportunity has been stolen by his brother, the blessing of his father. He does not, over 20 years, become bitter. He goes on to make amazing life for himself. Esau actually becomes fabulously wealthy. We see here that he has 400 men who work for him and follow him all the way from Seir to meet his brother. He's fabulously wealthy. And not because of any blessing or inheritance from his father. He's done it by himself. He's a self-made man. He's literally dug an existence for himself out of the dust of the desert. And then here, what does he do here? He forgives his brother, his rascally brother. Look at the details with me. Verse 9, he calls Jacob his brother. I mean, after 20 years, you've stolen everything I ever needed. He calls him his brother. In verse 10, Jacob is so, he, he knows it's true. He says, your face is like the face of God to me. He's so moved by Esau's forgiveness. But the most amazing verse to me is verse 4. Look with me at verse 4. Consider the verbs of verse 4. This is what Esau does. He ran, he embraced his brother, he kissed his brother, and he wept on his neck. Now, if you've read through the Bible, what does that sound like? That sounds like the most famous story that Jesus ever told. The parable of the prodigal son. When the prodigal comes back, it says the father ran and wept and embraced his son. Follow me here. Esau's behavior, okay, is lodged in Jesus' imagination. The prodigal son is a story that Jesus made up. It's a parable. He made the story up. But Jacob, Jesus, builds his character of God the father on Esau. Consider it. Jesus builds his character in the story on God the Father, the actual history of Esau. I mean, Esau, I think I'd like this guy. He's good. He's nice. He's self-made. I mean, in many ways, he is the American dream. But a close reading of the text tells a story. I didn't highlight this before. But three different times in Genesis 33, Jacob gives credit to God. In verse 5, he gets credit to God for his children. In verse 10, Jacob gives credit to, uh, to God for saving his life. And in verse 11, he gives God the credit for his property, which is to say for his wealth. You see, as Jacob makes his life way along life's pilgrimage, he is growing in his God consciousness, knowing that everything he possesses is from the hand of God himself. He names it. This is from God. He is thankful. But Esau, he never says a word about God. When speaking of his own wealth and possessions, verse 9, which is one of the saddest verses in this chapter, verse 9, he says simply, I have enough. No mention of God. He's saying, I have plenty. I mean, this is like the typical North Shore USA success story. He's rich, he's powerful, he's self-made, he's nice, and he is forgiving. You want this person as your neighbor. But as Ian Duguid says, you get the sense that God did not enter Esau's picture of the world in any real way. Whereas it had become the central reality in Jacob's life. One of the more famous books written in the 20th century is C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. Many of you have read or are familiar with Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, an Oxford and Cambridge scholar of the last century. The, last, the second to last chapter 
of mere Christianity is called, the chapter that is called, Nice People or New Men. Nice People or New Men. You see, the common misperception is that what makes you acceptable to God, what makes you a Christian, that is, is being nice, even forgiving like Esau, gracious like Roger Federer. You see, friends, we think that Christians are the nice people. They're like, you had not spent much time with Christians then. But, um, <laughs> friends, Christians are not necessarily nice. Jacob was not nice. He continues to show favoritism. And, and also bears saying that often nice people don't follow Jesus. And there's a real danger in thinking that God is gracious because you are nice. That's not grace. That's salary. That is earning it for being nice. And God does not change us or save us by salary, by earning it. He changes us by grace, unmerited, undeserved grace. And that's what gripped Jacob and Esau missed. Friends, this story, I don't know what it leaves you feeling, but it just is offensive. Because if Esau is not the better person, he's at least nicer He's at least more honest. He's at least more loyal. He's certainly a better brother. And why is this? Why has it worked out this way? Why is it this way with Jacob and Esau? Because the unobligated God unconditionally accepted the undeserving Jacob and does not accept the perhaps more deserving Esau. To quote something that will be later stated in the prophet Hosea and then in Romans chapter 9, Jacob, God says, have I loved, but Esau, have I hated. Do you feel it? <laughs> I mean, the whole point of this sermon series is that you feel the offense of grace. The offense of it. I, all my life, have been a good older brother. And this is offensive. So what does this leave you feeling? Some of you is like relieved. <laughs> uh, you know, man, I'm a rebel. I'm glad for this good news. Some of us, it's... <laughs> Some of it's, it's just disorienting. It's just disorienting. Or maybe you're like me and it's just offensive because you know people that God shows grace to. It just it rubs you the wrong way. But this is the grace of God. And so whether you're disoriented or whether you're offended or whether you're relieved, where do you, what do you do with this? I think there's only one thing to do. And it's to look to the third character in our story. And that is the faithful God. This is the most brief but the most important point. The faithful God. Now, 20 years before this story, 20 years before Genesis 33, at a place called Bethel, God had first revealed himself to Jacob. And this is what God said to Jacob 20 years before. This is Genesis 28, verse 15. God says, Behold, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back into this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. 20 years before, God makes a prophecy, and then in chapter 33, verse 18, it finally comes true. Verse 30, chapter 33, verse 18, look with me. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan. In the land of Canaan, this is fulfilling an unlikely promise, the faithfulness of God to bring Jacob back. It had been 20 years Two wives, two other concubines, 12 children, battles with God, battles with self, a scheming uncle, 
bickering wives, and the threat of a menacing brother. But God had been faithful to his promise. God had been faithful to his promise. And I can't help but think of God's faithfulness in keeping his promise of an even older promise than Genesis 33. And that is Genesis 3. Because in Genesis 3, God had said to Jacob's great-great-great-great-great-grandmother, a woman named Eve, he had said, he had spoke to Eve and said, of, the off, of your offspring, Eve, which would be the offspring of Jacob, I will bruise the heel of your offspring, but he will crush the head of the evil one. That is Genesis 3.15. And that is a prophecy. That is a prophecy of what God will do in the person of Jesus. Because the offspring of Jacob, the offspring of Eve, is Jesus. And his heel was bruised when he was hung upon a cross to die for the sins of the world so that you might be unconditionally accepted. And in so doing, it begins the process of crushing the evil one to bits. It starts then, it will be fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth. Friends, our God has made a promise to us. And he has made good on that promise in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. And so how do you make progress in the Christian life? You remind yourself of the faithful God who was faithful to Jacob and brought him all the way back to the land of promise after all those obstacles. And he was faithful to Jacob, to you, and to me by sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for the sins of the world, to be raised from, life, from death, to make new the world. And all it requires of us is to put our faith in him, the God who keeps his promises. Amazing grace, the life of Jacob. Let me pray for us. Our great God, as we squirm in our seats, as we see Jacob and his mixed behavior, as we squirm in our seats and we're bothered by what happens with Esau, God, we look to you, the author, the perfecter of our faith, the faithful one who meets us in the person of Jesus who died for our sins, that he might bring us home, accept us, and make us whole. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.